Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy in Leadership podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. In this podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices on leading teams, creating and executing strategy, and fostering the culture within an organization that works. My guest today is Michelle Wooker, who is the CEO of Gray Rhino and Company and the best-selling author of The Gray Rhino. Michelle, how are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you. Can you get us started by telling people a little bit about you, what's important to you, and what is The Gray Rhino? Sure. Well, I've had several lives. started out as a financial journalist, then went into media management, and then to think tank management, as well as uh, publishing a journal on, uh, on policy. And a few years back, I decided it was time to focus completely on my own ideas again. And I went back into my history as a financial journalist where I'd written about restructuring of defaulted debt in the emerging markets and in Greece and was fascinated by the difference between the way Argentina and Greece had handled their debt crises. They both saw a big, scary thing coming at them and Argentina very badly missed an opportunity to do something about it. And Greece had a pretty bad situation too, but they sat down with their creditors and in 2012 came to an agreement. So I really wanted to figure out why, what makes the difference when you see something really big and scary coming at you. That's where the the rhino came from, this idea of something that's two tons with a giant horn that's pointed straight at you. It's pawing the ground and snorting. You can't ignore it, even though you try to, and it's about to trample you, and it gives you a choice. And the Greek restructuring happened not too long after the, the global financial crisis, where everybody was talking about black swans, this thing that you can't even imagine or picture. And there was a great message behind that, which was that you are more likely to get trampled by something you can't possibly imagine than you'd think. But then people misused it as a cop out to say, oh, nobody saw it coming when there were situations where people really, really did see something coming right at them. And I also wanted to challenge this idea of the elephant in the room, which normalizes the idea that nobody says anything and nobody does anything. So that's where I came up with the gray rhino, this thing that's that's very obvious. People are talking about it, but not everybody is dealing with it. And there's a very big chance that you're going to get trampled by something that's obvious, even though we'd like to think that we're on top of obvious things and we don't want to admit that we're looking away or not dealing with with obvious things. And it's a gray rhino because as I learned in a grade school trip to the zoo, there's a species called a black rhino and there's a species called a white rhino, but they're both gray. The black one's not black. The white one's not white. So this most obvious thing, which is that they're gray in color, is something we talk around and try to ignore. So having read Aesop's fables and also seen how the, the black swan had attracted so much energy and attention as a great way to engage people emotionally with something abstract, I came up with a gray rhino to try to do the same thing and help people to recognize just how likely we are to get trampled when we take the eye, our eyes off of the most obvious thing in front of us. So that's where all my time is focused right now in that, in that concept and in trying to figure out why why countries, why, why governments, policy systems, why 
organizations, and now more and more why individual people don't deal with the gray rhinos in front of them and what they can do to get better at wrangling that gray rhino and managing the risks in their world. Very cool. Okay, so there's so much stuff in there. You know, one of the things I, I, I always try to get people to think about is, A, you know, in this case, what are the gray rhinos in your life? Like, what are the individual risks? But always, what is the impact of those things? And of what is the impact of the things that you don't see, that you don't know are waiting for you? And so as a listener, I encourage you really to look and say, hey, what are a, even if you don't know what the gray rhinos are yet, you know, what are some of the risks and biases that you might have that might stop you from fully understanding the impact of those things? And I think uh, really well put is in the elephant in the room is a thing that you know is there, but you don't talk about. And then there's the rhino um, in terms of the thing that is very clearly there, uh, that is going to get, uh, make a challenge. So Michelle, you know, talk us through, I mean, maybe some of your research or what you found as to how it relates to how these rhinos impact people and how they trample people and, and how they sort of come out of left field where people can't see them because in these big situations, the debt crises, these different organizations, there's people at the heart of it. It's not just, you know, one person, but it's a group of people that have somehow managed to avoid thinking of these things. So what are the things that contribute to these challenges or ignore, ignore ultimately ignoring these big risks? Sure. Well, there's there's just so much, uh, so much there. And, you know, the elephant in the room literally just stands there. So the, the really the dynamism of this concept is is what's important. But it, it comes down to three things. One is, you know, individual reactions, human biases, which are not the same for everyone. So sort of understanding some of the, the behavioral science behind why we don't deal with things. Uh, two, what happens when we get into groups, which often magnify those biases. And then on a bigger level, some of the, the structural factors, the, the perverse incentives, the way that we set up our politics, uh, the way that we set up corporate governance, and, and the ways that we make decisions about the world don't always work well. And the fact that people people are so afraid of taking a risk in order to prevent a risk from becoming a, an actual crisis. So just to start out, you know, with the human, the individual level, we're sort of hardwired to look away from something that's so big and overwhelming that if we really let the full import sink in right away, it would just floor us. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has written about this so beautifully uh, in her, you know, you know, five stages of grief, starting with denial. And she talks about how it's is actually a defense mechanism to let things slowly be absorbed. So so part of that defense mechanism is is sensible. Uh, but the problem is when we stay too firmly anchored in denial and not dealing with the things around us. Uh, there are other things, uh, you know, reasons that we don't perceive risks accurately. We will, you know, we'll, we'll react much more strongly to something that has emotional resonance. Uh, you know, terrorism the last uh, couple decades has been big because people were still traumatized by 9-11. And people look at their emotional reaction instead of the actual odds of something happening. 
Or there are things like like car accidents or, uh, you know, heart problems that are just so common that they're kind of boring. So we don't think about them. So our, our brains are not calibrated right to to perceive just how dangerous something is and how, how likely it is that we're going to be affected. So that's one, the human side. And, and everybody perceives these things differently. Everybody's got a different process for dealing with risks. Everybody's got a different sort of underlying emotional sensitivity. So the second part, the groups, you know, what happens when a lot of people get together? I'm sure your listeners have heard about groupthink and what they call it a confirmation bias, which is that if everybody sitting around the table to make a decision comes from the same perspective, they are much less likely to pay attention to alternative ideas. They're, uh, they're much more likely to accept what the first person says, and they're not going to pay attention to a devil's advocate or anyone who says, hey, we're forgetting this. And so to, to deal with that, uh, you need to really take a close look about at who's around the table, how the decisions are made. How do you set up a structured debate so that you're looking at all the right perspectives? How do you know that, that you've got the set of ideas around the table that you need? And that means, you know, don't just have a board full of lawyers or a board full of tech people or a board pe- full of people the same age or the same gender or anything. You think about your customers, think about the, the mix of people who are out there. So that's the second part, the, the group dynamics to look at. And then the third part is, is really the set of incentives. You know, in politics, we talk all the time about politicians kicking the can down the road, you know, leaving it for the next guy. And that's partly because, uh, particularly in Western countries, Western democracies, uh, politicians' terms are so short that it's in their interest to come up with something that creates a nice sugar high and leave the problems for the next guy down the road. Or you look at uh, you look at tax structures, you look at the way whistleblowers are dealt with. You look at whether there are consequences for making a big decision that's going to lose all your investors money. And those things come together to make it easier to make the wrong decision and harder to make the right decision. And there's really there's a feedback loop. Uh, you know, between the individual and the organization and these sort of uh, governance decisions and on a bigger level culture. You know, are you worried just about yourself? Uh, how much do you trust the people around you? How much are you willing to go to bat for the family who lives down the street or in the next state? So lots and lots of big questions. And part of what I try to do is get people to to think about those questions. Uh, I don't have the answers to everything. And frankly, even if I did, it, it's more effective when people come up with the answers themselves, because then they own it and they're much more likely to, to make things happen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really great. And, you know, I think you, you alluded to it in, in terms of the, you don't have the answers, but I think as a listener, I want, or I encourage you and I invite you to look at not if you have some of these uh, factors within your organization, whether that's individual risk aversion, the group think, or the structural factors that I mean, we call it stymie good decision making. But I invite you to look at the degree to which it exists, because I, I think it'd be uh, rash to think that nobody has it. But to what degree do you have those things? And 
Are they supporting or a hindrance to your organizational health and ultimately to making better decisions? And I'm running on the assumption that you want to be, air quotes, successful, whatever success is, and making good decisions will presumably drive you to there. And but within some of those things, you know, there's the the difference in personalities, how people, you know, assess and look at risks, how they make decisions to dictate risk mitigation. Then there's the group think. And what I heard you say, Michelle, was, you know, fundamentally diversify to minimize risk so that you don't have everybody creating, creating, having one perspective on it. And then the structural factors, how have you created your organization or your decision-making process, whether that's through governance, whether that's through timeframes and decision-making and to impact resolution, to actually support having a good uh, assessment of, I guess, your own impact on risk. Am I going to make a decision that's even going to impact me? And if it's going to impact me, it's way more likely that I'm going to make a better decision versus, well, the yeah, risk reward balance of I'm going to make a decision that sounds good because I don't actually have to deal with the outcome of that. That's what I got from what you shared. Anything I missed? <laughs> oh, that that was great, actually. And one of the things that I always ask people to do, and this is so, so freaking simple that people sometimes say what, but it's just asking yourself that question. What's my gray rhino? What's the big scary thing that's coming right at me? And what am I doing it about it? Because that sort of tracking and self-awareness of the response is incredibly important. And for organizations that don't have a good decision-making process and a good decision-making structure and diversity of opinions, well, for them, that might be the gray rhino that's in the way of dealing with the other gray rhinos around them. And some of the research on this shows that it can be uncomfortable. If you're used to sitting around a table with your old buddies then it's hard letting new perspectives come in, listen to to them uh, and realize that they may be challenging some of the things that you think that that idea that you just pulled straight out of the air might not be the best one ever. Or maybe it's a great idea, but you need to do X, Y, Z things to make sure that you don't have unintended consequences, to make sure that that it actually works. And this question is so great to ask because it's, you can use it in just about everything. You can ask it in your personal life, you know? Yeah. All my friends are saying that I should dump that significant other. Well, maybe you should pay attention to them or, you know, in your business, if somebody's saying something you don't want to hear, you're going to be much better if you listen and you deal with it right away. So that doesn't become a bigger problem down the road or even better if your business sees the problem and deals with it before the other people in the industry who are not dealing with the problem. And, you know, similarly on a, on a big level, I always ask people to, to really have three gray rhinos that are top of their, their mind, the personal one, the work career organizational one, and then another one involving your community or the planet, you know, climate change right now, a lot of people are are really upset about and uh, ask yourself, you know, do I recognize how dangerous this is? And then what can I do about it personally? Mm-hmm. 
one of the things that we look at like within our process and we, we just don't call it a great ride or we might start changing it is when we look at creating strategic plans we look at where we are now where do we want to get to which goes to that you know what does that success look like for us and very simply what are the risks but not all risks are created equal in our opinion and so what we do is we measure those risks in terms of impact and likelihood and I suppose in the context of our conversation, it's how big is the rhino? Is it a little baby rhino or is it <laughs> a ginormous rhino? Because if if you only have a couple things to focus on and as senior leaders, you know, they've got their, their laundry list of things. If you're a politician, you've got a bunch of platforms. If you are a CEO, you've got competing teams and competing priorities. And, you know, you have your senior team, your board, your, your individual staff, you know, to make happy. And the prioritization is often driven by how big the rhino is or how if the rhino is sleeping it's less relevant than a giant rhino that's charging at you you probably want to deal with the charging one versus the sleeping one that might you know but also having that short medium and long-term perspective going back to the context of climate change it's like well climate change hurts but it doesn't hurt now but it's gonna hurt for 30 40 years but at that point you know is it our problem and do we have the fortitude desire to tackle that rhino now versus leaving it to the next person, the next generation, somebody else will do it. And I think that's sort of the challenge with decision making is, you know, how do we structure those things to, I don't know, measure, evaluate the importance of those things. And I think if you do decision making or risk analysis just for the sake of risk and not looking at impact and likelihood, then you're, you're going to set yourself up to to fail. So that ties Absolutely. into my question is, where do you see the shortcomings in identifying these rhinos? What have you seen people do well and what have you seen people do poorly? I've actually come up with some some sort of personalities uh, to describe the way people deal with things and that, you know, the, the chicken little is one of them. You know, somebody sees everything as a gray rhino and freaks out over everything, which which takes energy away from the important things. You know, prioritization is is so important. I mean, you know, is, is this a big rhino or a baby rhino? And let me just say, my friends have been sending me baby rhino videos and cannot recommend, recommend this highly enough. If you're having a bad day, Google baby rhino video and it will <laughs> completely lift you up. But this this process of prioritization is is very important. I look at five stages of dealing with the gray rhino. The first one is denial. And from there you go to muddling, which is when you recognize it's there, but you come up with 47 reasons why not to do something. Diagnosing is really the stage that we're talking about right now. Certainly this, you know, the likelihood, uh, the speed, the size are very important. Uh, the interrelationship with other gray rhinos is very, very important. And the direction of that. Uh, zoologically, the term for a group of gray rhinos is a crash, hmm. which I just like, isn't that awesome? You can't make this stuff up. But, you know, there are some things where, you know, you want to solve something and then you realize that you can do all you want to solve this problem, but there's something else further upstream that you've got to deal with at the same time. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what you're you're fixing. I think it's also important uh, in the diagnosing stage to figure out what, you know, what are the resources? Do you have the resources to fix this problem? Is there a way to get them? And if so, how? 
who are the different stakeholders? And this is so important. I have a stakeholder analysis that I'll often have teams do. Uh, these different stakeholders are at different stages. You know, some of them are really going through the diagnosing process and coming up with a good solution. Others might be at the fourth stage, you know, panic, which is, you know, I, I always I love that, um, you know, the, the, the painting, the scream where people just say, do something, anything, just do something. And it's a problem because when people are panicked, they're more, more likely to do something, but they're also more likely to make a really stupid decision which is why doing the diagnosing earlier on is so important. And the final stage is action. You know, what are you doing to solve the problem and how are you tracking it? How are you judging your success? Uh, so you get this kind of feedback loop between what's a gray rhino? What am I doing it about it? How, how well am I doing? And is there anything that I need to do differently? And there's some gray rhinos I call Gordian knots where it's just, there is no good solution. And if there's not, you know, you think about where you're going to put your resources, where to direct them better. And then another one that's very important is what I call the, the meta gray rhino, which is the, the decision making processes that we've talked about. Is there some sort of structural thing that you need to fix before you can deal with the specifics of the problem in front of you? And for so many or, or organizations that decision-making piece is is such an important part of it that you really need to look at. And, and self-awareness is so important too. Uh, you need to you question your perceptions because different kind of people will perceive something in very, very different ways because it comes on from their own experiences. You know, I've, I had a really bad mold experience in an apartment. So you say mold and I <laughs> get all hysterical, but that, might not be such a big deal for someone else because they haven't dealt with the same problem. And you'll find that the different people will perceive things differently. You know, a, and, and sometimes it's because the risk is objectively different. Like a six foot two tall guy walking down a dark alley at three in the morning is a very, very different risk scenario from me as a five foot, almost four inch tall woman down walking down that same alley. So, you know, the risks are not going to be the same for everyone. And that's important to take into consideration that each one of us might not be evaluating what's in front of us objectively. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure I get those. those uh, I don't know if I got my missus step. So I got denial, muddling, diagnosing. Is resourcing a step after diagnosing? Or, and then I got action. Uh, panic. 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 <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Panic, and it's it's actually interesting. I I do a lot of workshops, uh, both with with corporations and with with trade groups. And one guy raised his hand uh, during the breakout sessions. He's like. What if panic is your first stage? Because you really, really, really weren't paying attention. Mm. He had a good point. Some people miss the early stages. Um, but, you know, the goal is obviously to, to get from denial to action as soon as you can. And most of the time when people are working with me, they, they probably don't have to worry about the denial stage for themselves too much. But looking at the stakeholders around them and people whose buy-in they need, that may be a different story. I got that. Okay. So denial, muddling, diagnosing, diagnosing, panic, and then action. And then you might start with panic if you haven't looked at it first. Um, 
you know, in terms of the, the diagnosing step. And then of course, not to forget the muddling, which a lot of people are, we knew about this thing and we didn't act on it, which happens in a lot of, I think, even on our personal lives, I hear procrastination uh, aligning with muddling. Um, but looking at what resources are required to address the problem, looking at some of the stakeholders who you may need to work with and form or what have you, um, getting to the source of what the risk is. And I think that's a big fallacy in, in, that I've seen in risk management where they actually look at you know a, a symptom but not the source of it. And if you actually address the source, it, you would have greater efficacy in terms of mitigating the risk instead of band-aiding it. And then of course, there's gonna be some risks that have no solutions and that you just have to sort of deal with these, I mean, bigger conceptual problems and do your best to, to mitigate them or have them be less impactful towards your organization. Absolutely. You, you deal with the symptoms and that's, that's pretty much all you can do. Yeah. And then when you when you look at what the, where the other stakeholders are, ask about why they are in that stage and what it's going to what it's going to take to move them to a different stage. I mean, coming from a policy background, I, of course, like, you know, facts and figures and analysis, but also coming from a policy background and looking at how people respond to that stuff. I know that not everybody responds to that the way I do. So it's it's a matter of looking at the stakeholders saying, what gets their heart on board? Not just the mind, but the heart. What is going to motivate somebody to do something about it? And, you know, how do you how do you get to them? And that's a much more human element of risk management. I've heard so many risk managers tell me they're very, very frustrated by the fact that not everybody stays up at night thinking about this the way do they do. So there's there's a real gap and a lot of bridge building that needs to happen between the professional risk management community and the people whose buy-in you need day in, day out. And that's partly why uh, the communities that have really embraced this, uh, uh, disaster risk reduction, um, it's, you know, they're, they're, I've done a lot of speaking with uh, with those groups. And, and they've, they've said that that sort of emotional response is very, very helpful to them. You know, it's why we have Aesop's fables. We've got animals that help to tell very human stories that humans would rather not tell about ourselves. But in telling them about the animals, we are talking about ourselves and we can somehow get closer to dealing with things because we're talking about them. Yeah. And it, I have a story. It has an animal in it where the guy walking by and hears a dog on a porch, like sort of howling, not like a loud howling, just like a, like a whimpering howl. And the guy asks, well, why doesn't your dog get up? And he's like, there's a, he's like, oh, why is your dog making that noise? Well, there's a nail sticking out of the floorboard. Well, why doesn't he get up? Well, because it doesn't hurt that bad. Oh, God. You know? <laughs> Ouch. It, and people don't, in my opinion, don't take enough action because it doesn't hurt that bad. And until you actually have a hurt that is felt, and, you know, we, we could probably spend four other podcasts talking about, you know, moving towards pleasure and away from pain. But if people don't actually see, hey, what's in it for them and, and, and they don't feel that pain, then they're not going to take action until the risk is bad enough or has something big enough at stake to move that forward. So, you know, as we close here, you know, what some of the takeaways that I hear for our listeners is both to put a, a risk mitigation process, even if you don't necessarily have a risk team, but to do yourself a favor and internalize risk as a process, whether that's through your strategic planning process, whether that's through like a conversation of rhino uh, I don't know, rhino safari, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> to say, hey, what are some rhinos that might and, and have fun with it? 
but to do that, to also recognize that different people have a different perception of risk depending on their background, you know, socioeconomic status, their job. An HR person might see a risk differently than a, than a marketing person would. And then to also recognize that there's stages through risk assessment, risk mitigation, and to really incorporate other people into that. And I think going through that process, the organization would be better off. Would you say that that's fair to say, Michelle? Absolutely. And I love what you said a minute ago about like, you know, have fun. You know, it's partly why the the animals in there is that, you know, some people just freeze when they're talking about something really scary. And I tried to make this an easier way to talk about these sort of things that are very difficult and, and, you know, make it not so awful because, you know, there are some people who are, who are motivated by, by seeing opportunities in a risk. And there are others who just freak out. So you you need a way to, to bring them in, but having that conversation and not even necessarily thinking about it as a system. I mean, it is a system, but talking about it as a way to have a conversation Instead of a, you know, formal process, which can really turn some people off, but really more as a conversation opener. Yeah. And it's and regardless of if you think it's an opportunity or not, or if you like it or don't, it doesn't stop the thing from being there <laughs> just because mm-hmm. just because there's a rhino that you like you turn the rhino then into an elephant and it doesn't stop it from being any less impactful. You just have chosen to ignore it. And, you know, the power if you uh, that I see is if you are able to take that and look at it, however you do, it allows you to be proactive instead of reactive, which for a lot of people is uh, like a calming thing that you've actually already planned to deal with that thing in advance versus when it's like six feet away from you and it feel, you can feel its breath on the back of your neck. Yeah. And that has two effects. One is that it means when you get to the panic stage, you've got a well thought out plan that was done when your sort of, you know, system two rational brain was was thinking about it. But the other part is that it makes you feel more of a sense of control, which mm-hmm. is great. And, and people, you know, people don't like uncertainty. And so just the process of identifying these things, going through your scenario planning, what are you going to do about it? What are the options? Just that process makes you feel a little bit more in control and actually leads to reducing the risk itself because you do have a good plan in place and you can respond more, much more quickly than people who haven't done that. Yeah, uh, my, my, there's a cheer documentary on, on TV that my wife likes and I will admit I also enjoyed watching it. And they go through this big cheer routine in the last two minutes and they have to they practice it like 40 something times with a bunch of different potential scenarios so that when it comes down to like the game time or when it actually happens, that they are prepared for pretty much anything because they've had that repetition and they've seen those variations. So it goes to the adage, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And so by looking at these risks and looking at these rhinos, you increase your chances of success and and ultimately moving forward successfully. So with that, I want to thank you so much, Michelle, for uh, sharing with us um, today. Where can people get your book? Where can people learn more about your work? Sure. It's uh, thegrayrhino.com. I use uh, gray with an A, but Gray with an E will also get you there, thegrayrhino.com. There's uh, links to buy the book. There's links to more information about some of these workshops. I've got a regular blog. Uh, you can also reach to, reach out to me on LinkedIn where I have a regular newsletter. And uh, I'm on Twitter, at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. So love to con- connect whichever of those ways is most convenient for your listeners.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Likewise. My guest today has been Michelle Wooker, 1-L-M-I-C-H-E-L-E-W-U-C-K-E-R, who is the author of The Gray Rhino and founder and CEO of Gray Rhino and Company. So if you have somebody in your company or somebody in your network that is dealing with gray rhinos in their life or worse, not dealing with them, be sure to send them the podcast. It'll make a big difference for their ability to be successful in their life and what's important to them. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. I appreciate you sharing this time with me. I appreciate the fact that you listen and I look forward to sharing with you next time. If you're getting ready to lead the strategic planning process yourself, be sure to check out our strategic planning toolkit. It has video walkthroughs to guide you through each step in the planning process from vision to action planning. We'll also have workbooks and downloads to document your plan and best practices to help get your team bought in so the plan gets executed successfully. You can get instant access to all the tools, all the templates, and all the downloads at smestrategy.net slash course.